text for this morning's sermon is taken from Matthew 1. We're going to read together the verses 1 through 6 and verse 16. And in the sermon, we'll focus particularly on verse 5a. Matthew 1, beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Terah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And Matthew continues with Jesus' genealogy. He concludes in verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, normally when a speaker begins his address, he does something to capture the attention of his readers. Often he'll start with a joke, a story, or some kind of interesting anecdote. Authors know how important it is to start their book with something that hooks their readers. Seems like Matthew breaks all these conventions when he begins his gospel. He starts with a genealogy, a list of names, a family tree, listing the ancestors of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read from Matthew 1, you probably thought, how boring. If this were a TV show, you would have hit the change channel button a long time ago. Yet for Matthew's original readers, this family tree would not have been as boring as it seems. You see... In his construction of Jesus' ancestry, Matthew includes the names of five women. Women were not normally included in a Jewish genealogy. The family name was passed on through the male heir. Each family's tribal inheritance was linked to the male leader of that family. Jewish culture was in many ways patriarchal. So for Matthew to include the names of five women in this family tree was absolutely astounding. Now we would expect that in listing some of the important women in Jesus' family line, we'd hear the names of women like Sarah and Rebecca, upstanding women in Israel's history. But aside from Mary, the mother of Jesus, the women mentioned in this family tree are not the type that you would expect to be highlighted. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were all of Gentile origin. 
And Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite. Not only were they not of good Jewish stock, some of these women appeared to be of low moral character. Tamar slept with her father-in-law Judah, and Rahab was a prostitute. Yet these are the women Matthew mentions in Jesus' family tree. Why would Matthew do that? Why would he trace Jesus' lineage back to the black sheep in the family? Matthew does so deliberately. It's part of the gospel message that he conveys. The point that Matthew makes is that the gospel message is not just for men. It's also for women. The gospel message is not just for Jews. It's also for Gentiles. The gospel is not just for those of high moral standing. It's for sinful people like you and me. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba are included to show that salvation is by grace alone. If these women could be included in the lineage of Jesus, then lowly and despised people can also be among his followers. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. Christ's genealogy shows how God uses the prostitute Rahab to bring about Jesus' birth. We'll see Rahab's despised background, Rahab's deep faith, and Rahab's delightful inclusion. Tracing your ancestry is big business today. Many people are interested in discovering their roots. Yet most people today do this simply out of curiosity. In ancient Israel, your family lineage was important. It told you what tribe you were from, what clan you belonged to, what family you were part of. This helped to identify you. It gave you a claim to your family's inheritance in the promised land. It gave you a legal standing in Israel. Matthew wrote his gospel to a primarily Jewish audience to persuade them that Jesus was truly the Messiah promised long ago. It was necessary to show that he had come in fulfillment to the promises God made to his people long ago. Matthew 1 verse 1 says that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham and the son of David. Matthew mentions these two figures because of the specific promises the Lord had made to them. To Abraham, God said, in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. To David, God promised, and your household and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Thus Matthew connects Jesus back to David the king and to Abraham, father of the nation of Israel. Yet Matthew also includes five women in Christ's genealogy. 
ancient Jewish family trees rarely contained the names of women. This was because women did not have much in the way of legal standing in Israel. A girl growing up in Israel was under the headship of her father. And when she got married, she came under the headship of her husband. There was a certain amount of disdain toward women in Jewish society. In his regular morning prayers, a Jewish man would, among other things, thank God that he had not made him a woman. Thus, women's names did not normally appear in Jewish genealogies. Including these names was thus contrary to cultural norms. This morning, we pay specific attention to the inclusion of Rahab in Jesus' family line. The Bible first mentions Rahab in Joshua 2. When Israel was gathered on the far side of the Jordan, Joshua sent two men as spies. He commanded them, go view the land, especially Jericho. Jericho was seen as the gateway to the rest of Canaan. It was a fortified city surrounded by thick, high walls. It was considered impregnable. If the Israelites needed to conquer this city before they could move forward into the promised land. When the Lord established his covenant with Abraham, he told him, your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And he promised that Abraham's descendants would come back to Canaan in the fourth generation. God gave a specific reason why they would not be allowed to conquer the peoples of Canaan before that. He said, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord was still giving time for the Canaanites to repent before he brought judgment upon them. Yet by the time Joshua and the Israelites were at the fords of the Jordan River, this time was complete. Our holy God was offended by the Canaanites' idolatry and by their wickedness. The Canaanites were well known for sacrificing their children on the altars of their gods. They practiced prostitution as part of their fertility rites in the service of their gods. And thus, on behalf of the Lord, Joshua commanded that Jericho and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. This meant that all the people and animals were to be killed, and all their goods were to be destroyed. The silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron were to be put in the treasury of the Lord. Rahab was part of this Canaanite people. She too was under the ban of destruction. In Jesus' day, there continued to be a great divide between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews saw themselves as the covenant people of God. They viewed the Gentiles as idolaters because the Jews did not want to be influenced by worldly ways, they avoided close contact with the Gentiles. They would not enter their homes or eat with them, for that would make them ceremonially unclean. 
The result was that the Jews of Jesus' day looked down on the Gentiles with scorn and contempt. So it was remarkable that Matthew included the names of four Gentile women in Jesus' genealogy. Joshua 2 tells us that when the spies came to Jericho, they entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It is striking that in the different places where the Bible mentions Rahab, she's always identified as a prostitute. There are references to Rahab the prostitute in Joshua 6, in Hebrews 11, and in James 2. The Bible goes out of its way to identify her as a woman of low moral character, as someone who sold her body for money. Why would Matthew go out of his way to include her name in Jesus' family tree? Matthew himself was a man who had been despised and hated by many. Formerly, he was a tax collector. The Pharisees and teachers of the law despised tax collectors. They considered them sinners, along with the prostitutes and others of questionable moral character. Tax collectors were despised because they often charged too much. They got rich off of ill-gotten gains. They were hated because they were considered traitors working for the Roman oppressors. Thus, prior to becoming Jesus' disciple, Matthew was part of a group in Israel that were outcasts. Matthew tells us about how, despite being despised and hated by many, he was chosen by Jesus Christ. Jesus found him sitting in a tax collector's booth and said to him, follow me. Jesus then went in and ate dinner at Matthew's house. Many other tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. This went against all social conventions. Yet Jesus showed him grace in spite of who he was. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The connotation was, How can he be partying with a group of lowlifes like this? On hearing this, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew has learned this lesson well from his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Being an outcast himself, Matthew has an eye for others in Israel in similar circumstances. He has an eye for others whom the Jewish leaders disdained and rejected. He could identify with others in Israel who are also considered rejects. 
When you look at the woman Tamer, it's easy to look down on her as a wicked Canaanite who served other gods. It's easy to write her off as a sinful woman who sold her body for money. Yet living in her circumstances, how much choice did Tamar have in being a prostitute? Not many women choose prostitution as a career. In most cases, it's forced upon them or they resort to it because they feel it's the only way to survive. Matthew puts Tamer's name in Jesus' genealogy. Even though she was of Gentile origins and involved in sexual sins, a victimized woman, lowly and despised, one who would be considered an outcast in Jesus' day, Matthew does this to make a point. His point is that Tamer and the other lowly and despised women in Jesus' genealogy are part of the family of Christ. These women are instruments in the Father's hands. God chooses them, and he uses them to work out his plan of redemption. There's a glorious message in this for us, beloved. When we look at Jesus' genealogy, we see it's a lineage of grace. God uses ordinary people, sinful people, the outcasts of society to bring about the birth of his son in human flesh. If women such as Tamar could be included in Jesus' ancestry, then we can all be included in his family. The point is that Jesus Christ came into this world through sinful people, and that he came for sinful people. Your standing with God does not depend on how good or how successful you are in this life. You are not saved by your good works or by being of acceptable standing in society. Salvation is by grace alone, through the merits of Jesus Christ crucified. This brings us to our second point, and I will consider Rahab's deep faith. There were not many places where the spies could have gone when entering the city of Jericho. It would have been difficult for them to disguise themselves. Their style of clothing and the language they spoke would have made it, would have made it difficult for them not to stand out. Perhaps they could have stayed at a local inn, but that would have put them in contact with many people. So it makes sense that they stayed at the house of a prostitute. Any traveler would have an excuse for staying at her place. Yet while travelers and traders would have been more common in Jericho, at this point in time, the city was on high alert. The citizens of Jericho were aware of the fact that Israel was gathered on the far side of the Jordan. 
and that only the floodwaters of this river were preventing them from entering Canaan. Not long after these men entered the city, word came to the king of Jericho. Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Thus the spies' lives were in grave peril. The king sent soldiers to Rahab's door, commanding her to give up the men who entered her house, because they had come to spy out the land. (coughs) Yet Rahab protects them. She admitted that the men had come to her place, but she said that she did not know where they were from. She told the king's men that they had left just before the gates of the city were closed for the night. She urged them to chase after the men quickly. In actual fact, Rahab had hidden the spies on the roof of her house and covered them with stalks of flax. What she did was extraordinary. She saved these spies from from certain torture and death. Why did she do that? She didn't owe them anything. They were part of the enemy who was coming to take over the land. Rahab was a traitor to her own people. In hiding the spies, she put her own life and the life of her family at risk. Joshua 2 makes plain why Rahab hid the spies. She did it because she had heard about the Lord, the God of the Israelites. She heard about how the Lord had dried up the Red Sea when Israel came out of Egypt. She'd heard about the defeat of Og and Sihon, the two Amorite kings. She believed in the coming judgment of Canaan. Rahab chose sides in the conflict between the Israelites and her own people. She identified herself with the Lord, the God of Israel, instead of with her own Canaanite gods. She confessed that the Lord is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab told the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She confessed our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. The arrival of the Israelites on the fords of the Jordan River had had caused not only her, but all her countrymen to shake in their boots. The Lord's wondrous acts for Israel made them afraid for their lives. Instead of continuing to live in fear, Rahab shows forth a living faith. Her action of hiding the spies was motivated by faith in the Lord, Israel's God. Hebrews 11 verse 31 says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Rahab was confident in the Lord. She believed that he alone could save her and her family from certain death. 
That's why she hid the spies at the risk of her own life. Once Rahab has opportunity to speak with the spies, she begs for mercy. She wants to be spared God's retribution against all her people's sins. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. When Rahab pleads for the spies to deal kindly with her and her family, she uses a Hebrew word meaning loyalty, covenant faithfulness, or grace. That was not something Rahab had experienced much of in her life. She did not have a husband who was committed to her. She was a plaything for men who used her for sexual gratification. Her gods were not able to spare her from victimization. And she saw the Lord's faithfulness in delivering his people from slavery in Egypt and protecting his people from the attacks of other nations. Rahab wanted to come under the Lord's care and protection. She asked for a sure sign from the spies by which she could be assured that she and her family would be saved from death. They told her to tie a scarlet cord in the window of her house and to gather into her house her father and mother, her brothers, and all her father's household. Anyone who was in her home would be protected. Anyone who went out would not. The spies also said that if Rahab betrayed them, the deal would be off. There are many similarities between what the spies required of Rahab and what the Lord required of the Israelites in their Passover celebrations. Israel celebrated the Passover on the night when God's judgment was about to fall on the firstborn of Egypt. The Lord would send forth a destroying angel to kill the firstborn son in every family. The only way to escape this judgment was to celebrate the Passover, slaughtering a lamb and painting the doorposts of your house with blood. None of the Israelites was allowed to go out of the door of their house that night, not until morning. In the same way, Rahab's house needed to be marked with a scarlet cord. Her family was to remain in her house in order to be spared God's judgments. By her faith in the Lord, Rahab secured deliverance for herself and her family from the ban of destruction that was on Jericho. James 2 verse 25 highlights how Rahab had a living faith. She believed and she acted. God considered her righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Beloved, to share in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need the same kind of faith. 
A faith that identifies with Jesus Christ, that chooses for him. Believing that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinful people like you and me from sin and death. A faith in which we commit our hearts and lives to God's service out of thankfulness that all, for all that Christ has done for us. This brings us to our final point, Rahab's delightful inclusion. Joshua 6 tells us that after the Israelites had marched around Jericho seven times on the seventh day, the trumpets were blown, the people shouted, and the walls of Jericho fell down flat. At this, Israel's armies marched into the city and captured it. All the men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys were put to death. But on Joshua's orders, the two spies were sent to Rahab's house to bring out her and her family. They brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. Rahab and her relatives were put outside the camp of Israel. Despite the Lord's ban of destruction against the Canaanite peoples, Rahab and her family were spared. This shows that the boundary between the Canaanites and the Israelites was not drawn on ethnic lines, but was based on their allegiance to the Lord. The Lord showed mercy, covenant faithfulness, and loyalty to Rahab because she had committed her heart and life to him. The reason Rahab and her family were held outside the camp of the Israelites was because they were ceremonially unclean. They would have needed to undergo some kind of cleansing ritual before being accepted among God's people. For the rest, we know very little about what happened to Rahab Joshua does not tell us any more about her inclusion in the people of God. Hebrews and James mention her because of her faith. But it's only in Matthew's gospel that her special place in redemptive history is made clear. Matthew highlights Rahab's status as forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ by including her in Jesus' family tree. This woman, this Gentile, this outcast is given a prominent place in Jesus' genealogy. Matthew writes that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. From this we see that Rahab married Salmon and that they had a son named Boaz. He was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David. In our text we see God's wisdom and grace on display. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul reminds the Corinthian church that Not many of them were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. 
He writes, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God used lowly and despised Rahab to accomplish his plan of salvation. We noted earlier that Rahab and her family were held outside the camp of Israel because they were ritually unclean. Sacrifices would have had to be made for them, for them to be received among God's people. Hebrews 13 says that when the high priest carried the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sacrifice for sins, the bodies of those animals were burned outside the camp. The author of Hebrews compares this to Christ, who suffered outside the gate in order to make his people holy through his blood. Beloved, Jesus Christ was willing to come into this world to suffer and die in order to save us from our sins. As Christians, it's easy for us to take on an air of superiority thinking that in some way we deserve to be saved. We don't. Not in any way. Our commitment to Christ, our faithfulness, our service merit nothing. It is only because Christ identifies with us in our sins and misery, our darkness and death, that we can identify with him in his righteousness and life. Your background, your ethnicity, your social standing count for nothing in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, male or female. It makes no difference what kind of baggage you carry, what type of skeletons you have hidden in your closet. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. In Galatians 3, Paul writes that in Christ Jesus, we're all sons of God through faith. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus' family tree shows that nobody is excluded from the family of God because of race, nationality, social status, or sex. The gospel is for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Amen.
Let's respond to the gospel message by singing together from the song of Mary. Hymn 17 stanzas 1, 4, and 6. We'll do so standing. Mm -hmm. 